1: 702 and Cape Talk.
2: The naked scientist.
1: Good morning to you, Chris. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And today's story, very important one, particularly this part of the world, a story in the world of science related to circumcision. Yes, this
2: is the follow up studies which build on the discovery about 10 years ago that circumcision in men can dramatically reduce the risk of picking up HIV. The latest data comes from Zimbabwe, where there have been a number of initiatives to increase the rates of circumcision in order to protect people. And what they've now done is to go back and say, what sort of a dent is this making in the HIV epidemic in that country? So this is a paper, it's in the journal PLOS One. Jessica McGillan is the lead author, and the second author is John Stover, who we spoke to this week. About a million circumcisions have been done in young men between about the ages of 10 and 49. And what the researchers have done is to go into the country to collect data from people to look at behaviours. They've asked about infection rates. They've asked about circumcision rates. And they've used this data to calibrate a mathematical model to then look at the impact of this initiative in order to ask the question, well, actually, is this bearing fruit? Is this making a difference to HIV infection rates and what John Stover told us this week is that of the million people that have been circumcised this has immediately led to the prevention of about 80,000 cases of HIV in the country. This will grow over the next 10 to 15 years to about half a million cases of HIV prevented because most of the people who've undergone the procedure so far were not sexually active because they were young and so as they go into the bracket where they begin to become sexually active then obviously the protection will continue later in their lives so they're arguing that with their target of 80 to 90 percent penetration rate of the procedure if they can get to an 80 percent rate then actually this will return millions of people who'll be prevented from Catching HIV over the time, so they think it's very worthwhile. And in terms of cost benefit, actually, the cost of running this circumcision program is more than offset by the savings of not having to give people antiretroviral drugs because they haven't caught HIV. The level of protection is between 60 and 80 percent for the men who get circumcised and about 50 percent for the
1: partners of those men. Stunning, let's uh, talk to Bridget. Good morning, Bridget. Welcome to the show.
3: I want to ask how much fluid. An adult should have in 24 hours and whether coffee and tea and um, count and whether uh, tall people, short people, fat people, all
1: need the same amount of fluid. Very good question. I want to tag on to that one, Chris, and ask whether one can have too much as well.
2: It's interesting. She didn't say anything about wine or beer. Um, You know, enormous (laughs) level of self-restraint, Bridget. Uh, The answer is you need to, to replace what you're losing. Humans are extremely good at controlling their water losses. Not as good as a tiny mouse that's adapted to live in a desert, but we're still extremely good. We have very good kidneys, which are capable of scavenging back most of the water. The water we're obliged to lose, these are called insensible losses, is lost in the body in a range of ways. We lose water in the obvious way through urine. We also lose water from our breath. So you lose about half a litre of water just from breathing. There's also evaporation from sweating and in a hot climate you can lose up to 5 litres an hour from sweating so it's very variable and it will depend the amount of water a person loses on where they're living and what they're doing and if they can afford to lose water because the body as soon as it becomes dehydrated will start scavenging back water from all the sources it possibly can. So to be healthy you need 1 or 2 litres of water probably about 2 litres of water a day minimum really. Less than that you can cope with, more than that your body will just get rid of it. But if you overdo it and you outpace the ability of the kidneys to throw water away, then you're in trouble as well. Because if you put too much water in the body, you dilute your blood down too much. Water leaches out into your tissues and this can make your brain swell. And people who, for instance, have gone to rock concerts and nightclubs and got too hot... Drunk too much water to compensate, often because they've been on drugs that have given them extra bursts of energy and made them dance too fast, for example, they get brain swelling and this can cause fitting and sometimes is fatal. So you can overdo it. It's better to just put back in what you've lost. And, and any source of fluid is a good source of fluid within reason. Um, alcohol, bit different because alcohol is itself a diuretic, but tea, coffee, juices, They're all water-based, most of them 99 plus percent water, so it's absolutely fine and it will rehydrate you beautifully. Alcohol, anything more than about 10% alcohol will be a net diuretic effect, so you'll lose water uh, in the long term rather than replace it. So if you are going to have a nice glass of Shiraz of an evening, make sure there's a glass of water to go with afterwards to put the water back.
1: Reggie in Bedford View, good morning to you. UB, good morning, uh, Chris. Good morning to you. It's Hi, Reggie. The question, uh, yeah, it's
3: ironic the question that was just posed by the caller before me regarding coffee because my specific question is related to a spirit which is whiskey. I've been drinking whiskey for plus 40 years, uh, Chris, and I've uh, always been diluting my whiskey with uh, either apple ties or, or, you know, the ginger And my friends always used to laugh at me and say, You're wasting the Scotch. But recently, a friend of mine directed me to a dry lemon because it's mixed with quinine or or aquanine, whatever the, the name is called. So I just wanted to know from you um, if you can maybe relate the differences and the benefits of how really to drink a real, real Scotch.
2: <laughs> mm.
1: I didn't see that one coming.
2: It's a bit early in the morning, but uh, I don't mind saying that... know
1: uh... yeah, it's a Friday morning. <laughs>
2: a really nice scotch actually if you ask the (laughs) the aficionados and the people who really know what they're talking about and I'm not one of them but they, they do actually use water and you're not supposed to drink the spirit as as neat fire water. you are supposed to add some water to it because actually it takes the edge off and you can really enjoy it um you won't you won't be losing anything by not adding water in terms of the alcoholic content because everything that you swallow will have the opportunity to be absorbed, and you'll still get just as drunk but actually, the water that you put with it does it does tend to smooth the flavor a bit, so if you have a decent fine whiskey. A small amount of water to go with, maybe 50-50, that's what I've been doing. And it does taste extremely nice. And maybe maybe a real whiskey expert can tell us why water's the best choice of mixer. It certainly is for me. But, uh, you know, whiskey's a spirit. It's got lots of alcohol. It tastes good. You can put it with, with a range of things. And, uh, you know, I talk to people who, who mix it with everything. So I don't think you're completely unusual by mixing it with uh, apple ties, although that's a relatively new one on
1: me. Thanks, Reggie. David, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Okay, David has lost his voice. Maybe he's gone to find some scotch. Uh, Swen, good morning. Morning. How are you guys doing? We well, thank you. What's your question?
3: I've got a very odd question for the scientist. I'd like to find out if it is possible to harvest the electricity that comes from lightning, and if it is possible to harvest that electricity. Have we ever thought of using high planes for the sprites to try and harvest that power that are in sprites?
2: Did you say it's Sven or Schwen? Sven. Yeah. Hi, Sven. Yeah, Sven like the yeah, lots of people have thought about trying this because lightning is electricity. Benjamin Franklin, from you know the one, one the, the famous American electrician, uh, was the first to prove that actually what's coming down from the sky is electrical energy. When he did an experiment, very dangerous—you shouldn't ever do this—he flew a kite into a thunderstorm and was able to tap a, a stream of sparks off of the kite string via a key onto a metal rod driven into the ground, thus proving that this seemed to be the same stuff that you could generate with static electricity by rubbing things together, say, uh, some amber and a a pair of tights or stockings, which is what um, other people were doing at the time to make electricity, and also the electricity that came from batteries that people had invented by them. So people thought, well, there's all this electricity up in the sky, so is it possible for us to tap that electricity down and collect it in some way? First of all, you have to do some maths. How much electricity is there in a lightning bolt? Well, lightning, probably it's, it's millions of volts, and it's probably about 1 to 12 billion joules of energy in every lightning bolt. You think, well, you know, 10 billion joules, that sounds like a lot. But actually, if you work it out, that would make you about 100,000 pieces of toast, or it would run, run a 100-watt light bulb for about 100 days. And you think how many people live in a city, not very Not very many people would have their lights on for very long with the energy in a lightning bolt. Then you've got the whole question of, well, how do we get the energy out of the lightning? You'd have to have some way of collecting lightning. So you'd have to have a lightning conducting system that could lure lightning to one place, withstand the blast, and then store the energy in some sensible way, and then redistribute the energy in some sensible way. And when you take all the costs of all the infrastructure into account, the return just doesn't justify the end. So we don't think that this is a very viable
1: way of doing it. Jim, welcome to the show. What is your question? Hi. Let's just assume that I'm
3: standing still and there's an object to my right that's travelling at three-quarters the speed of light towards me and to my left, identical, at three-quarters the speed of light, which means that they are closing on each other at one-and-a-half times the speed of light. Wouldn't that break the rule of the maximum speed only being the speed of
2: light? hello good question Jim but the answer is no because relative to you those things are approaching you at a combined speed that's maybe faster than the speed of light if you counted down the time but the individual things that are moving are not breaking the barrier of the speed of light the speed limit for things moving is the speed of light and the reason for this is that as you accelerate things you have to give them energy to go faster if something goes faster and therefore has more energy because e energy equals m c squared where m is mass if you increase the energy of something because c squared the speed of light doesn't change the mass must increase so as things go faster they get heavier and if things get heavier they need more energy to accelerate them so therefore eventually you get to a point where you need an infinite amount of energy to make something go faster so therefore it can't go faster than the speed of light but because the objects in your experiment are not themselves individually breaking the light speed barrier everyone's
1: happy 702 and cape talk
0: the naked scientist
1: 21 minutes after 10 jeremy good morning welcome to the show
3: hi eusebius and chris good morning Uh, my question is can something become nothing for example a grain of sand as it erodes what happens to the component parts? Do they just disappear from the face of the earth? Similarly, the ashes of a burnt tree, you know what actually happens there?
2: Hello, Jeremy. Uh, the answer is that uh, everything that you see around you is made up of atoms. This is one reason why you should never believe what an atom says, because they make up everything. But the point is that atoms can't be destroyed unless they uh, radioactively decay and turn into a new kind of atom. An atom is an atom. It's an element. And those elements combine together to make compounds. And sand is made of silica. The ash that is in a tree is also bits of silica. There'll be carbon things there and various other compounds. But... As you break those things down and make them smaller and smaller, they don't disappear. They just turn into smaller particles that eventually are too small for you to see. So nothing disappears. You can't make these atoms evaporate. Um, they'll always be there. They'll just be too small for you to see.
1: Okay, thanks for that question. Kurt, good morning to you.
3: Um, I wanted to know if it's possible for you to run a cable from the bottom of the Earth through into space and use the vacuum of space as sort of a, the, the pulling of space as a way to generate energy.
2: There, there are problems with doing this there's a material science problem because you've got to get your tether uh, up into space a cable which is going to be 100 miles or 200 miles long to get out somewhere into space and then if you want it to where the international space station is that's i'm mixing all my units up here but that's about 400 kilometers up so it's a really long way out there um so i'm not really sure why it would be useful because you've got enormous windage effects because you've got the air streams at different layers of the atmosphere putting a force on this stuff and it, it's going to be a really big material science problem we haven't got materials that are capable of doing this very well at the moment and why would we want to do it i'm not sure what we would achieve um theoretically you could send a cable out into space but but what would be the benefit
3: do we not run cables from uh, like sort of in the ocean that are more than 400 kilometers long already
2: yeah, but they're not subject to uh, the, the effects I'm describing. They're reinforced cables that sit along the underside of the ocean. If you want to send a cable up in, into the high atmosphere, you've got to support the weight of it. It's got to be strong enough to support its own own the load on it because the cables that are conveying information under the ocean are not under load. If you're going to put something on a tether out into space, it's going to have an enormous amount of load on it from winds hitting it, from the object on the end of it, etc. So you've got to engineer the ability to support itself as well as whatever's on the end of it, and all of the other effects of the atmosphere and so on. So I'm not really sure what what did you have in mind putting on the end of your cable.
3: Um, the idea basically is to because if you have sort of a because the idea came from a space elevator that people sometimes talk about. But if you had a cable kind of running into space and use the vacuum of space, you could I feel that you could generate energy from it, as in because you're using the pull of space, the vacuum itself. As a, and let's say the cable is connected to a turbine down down on Earth or wherever on Earth, it generates its own energy. And it's energy without any use, need yeah. for... Uh,
2: well, that, that sounds like a perpetual motion machine, and unfortunately, that's not going to work because if you think about it, for something, I see where you're going with this. If you've got a vacuum in space and you've got lots of air pressure on the surface of Earth, why can't we run a turbine up the inside of your tube or whatever? And the air flowing into that vacuum would drive a turbine and we'd get some electricity. The problem is that the air's got to be lifted away from the Earth's surface, so it's doing work against gravity all the way up. And the thing that's forcing the air up the tube is the weight of air above the air but as the air rises up the tube then there's going to be weight of air um, less weight of air to propel it further so eventually it's going to like a spirit level even out and there's no net force to keep pushing it out into space gravity will, will win in the same way as it holds the atmosphere against the earth's surface so it wouldn't actually work unfortunately
1: david good morning to you
3: hello chris i'd like to know uh, if, what you think of my theory about uh, weight loss If I do some exercise before I go to bed, uh, thereby depleting my blood sugar, I then go to bed. And uh, for eight hours now, the body's got time to draw on its fat loss in order to replace the blood sugar level. Uh, Is this idea any good at all?
2: Hi David, I think the idea is brilliant in the sense that doing some exercise is better than doing no exercise but I I think that it's slightly flawed in terms of when the best time to exercise is because that's going to be uh, different for everybody because some people are going to find that they're more motivated at certain times of the day that some people also find that... um, that their appetite changes across the day their ability to actually do exercise meaningfully changes across the day so i think the the bottom line is exercise is definitely the way to go because it boosts lean tissue and it burns calories so you're increasing your potential to burn calories and you're also directly influencing your burning of calories the Other thing to bear in mind with any kind of weight loss strategy is that energy in must equal energy out, or as they put it in Australia, calico, calories in, calories out. You've got to keep that in balance, otherwise there'll be a change in weight, either up or down, depending upon which way there's an imbalance. So exercise is good, exercise is good on a range of different levels, not just because it burns calories, but because it makes you healthier anyway. It's good for blood pressure, it's good for muscle strength, it's good for actually uh, diet preventing diabetes and obesity but i would do exercise when it works best for that person and try to change your eating habits during the day so you eat most of your calories earlier in the day and fewer calories as the day goes on the old adage is you should uh, you should have breakfast like a king lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper the idea being that you're not having a massive great meal in the evening when your body doesn't really have anything to do with
1: all those calories Dale, good morning to you. You've got questions about what, the science of solar energy.
3: Yes, uh, good morning. Um, I'm the scientist. Look, um, South Africa is poor in water, but we reach in sunlight. Why can't we harness the sunlight in terms of our buildings that we have? Instead of having normal window panes, uh, having some type of solar panel installed in the buildings to generate electricity.
2: Yep, I think you should go and get a job in government if you haven't already because um that's exactly what the country needs to do. Um and it, it's ironic that many of the countries with the best sun record as in more days of sunshine have some of the poorest installations of solar panels. I mean, I used to go around Australia and be gobsmacked by the paucity of solar panels I would see in Australia given that this is one of the sunniest places on earth, South Africa, another very sunny place. Um Australia is beginning to sort its solar situation out. I think South Africa has has enormous opportunities here and of course what you can do with solar is to drive desal and you can use the very energy intensive process of desal, you can drive that with solar energy which means it's then not contributing a huge carbon contribution to the atmosphere and it's not costing you a fortune but it is returning a very valuable thing which is water and then your point about buildings, isn't it strange that we create greenhouses for ourselves to cocoon ourselves in, we then get too hot because the sun comes streaming in through these windows of these posh buildings covered in glass which is the de rigueur these days and then we have to spend even more money throwing the heat away that we've collected why not do what you're suggesting and come up with better devices which actually turn those windows into solar panels companies are doing this, these devices do it exist and they have ways of actually turning the roofs of buildings the walls of buildings and the glass of buildings into sunlight collectors to then do a range of things one is directly generate electricity in other cases to do things like electrolyse water to produce hydrogen which you can then feed into a fuel cell and use that energy usefully so people are doing this but it just takes people to implement it
1: Stunning. Chris, thank you so much. Every week, we love learning from you and we'll do it again next week. Have a beautiful weekend.
2: Already looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. See you next time.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities.